You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Eric Reynolds. Eric is the associate publisher at Fanographics. And my other guest is Phil Nell. Phil Nell is a academic and biographer, uh, mainly known in the comic circles for his work on um, Crockett Johnson and his wife, Ruth Krauss. Um, together, along with uh, folks like Dan Klaus and Chris Ware, they've all been kind of informative in the uh, new collection of um, Barnaby Serps by Crockett Johnson. The new book out... Is it out now? Out soon? It is. It is. From Fanographics, as I mentioned, Eric is from there, so I guess it's appropriate for you to be talking about your own company's book. Um, Thank you, gentlemen, for both joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Now, kind of it's always weird to like abs- talk about someone else um in the context we're doing it because obviously um he's not able to join us cuz he's been gone for several years several decades several decades yeah um but we are going to try our darnest to get the ghost of uh of of, of uh, Mr. O'Malley to join us or something um <laughs> Crystal McCree <laughs> Is that how you pronounce it? It is indeed. All right. Um, and so I was thinking, trying to like wrap my head around how to approach this. I've done some of these shows about specific creators, um, and with with Johnson, he seems to have all these odd little facets of him, where becoming a cartoonist wasn't his first drive or direction. If that's kind of a good way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Crockett Johnson was a man of many interests, and one of the challenges in writing about him is that he is far smarter than I am. Uh, he was very widely read. He later became an amateur mathematician, um, but he got into cartoons. An athlete. It, well, yeah, he was an athlete too. Yeah, he played. He played football, um, but he got into cartooning via graphic design and via layout. Um, via typography, really, which, if you think about it, is not all that surprising, since his is the only comic strip to be regularly set in type. And he really draws with the precision of a typographer, too, that there's something about his line which evokes typography. That's how he got into it. He, he worked in magazine design, um, did a lot on uh, for McGraw-Hill, various publications, and then he shifted over to New Masses, in uh, 1936 and became art editor of that Communist Weekly and contributed cartoons and that, that led him into uh, into cartooning which was his first first real success was cartooning and that was with uh, of course with Barnaby which thanks to Eric and the folks at Fanographics we we can now read the first two years of with more to come I'm presuming with lots more to come there'll be five <laughs> volumes in all, all ten years of Crockett Johnson's classic comic strip will be published. We're doing one a year, and it'll be the first time that this has all been published. All all the original strips have been published. So I'm, I'm, it's really great to work with Eric, and they're 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 doing beautiful things as Fanographics does. Now, was this his first time doing storytelling? Um, I can't remember if he'd done children's books before. Children's books come later. Children's books come later. Uh, there are basically three phases to his career. The first is the cartoonist period, uh, Barnaby and, and what preceded it. Uh, the second is the children's book period, most famously, Harold and the Purple Crayon. The final phase of his career was that of a painter, 
and mathematician, and he, in fact, in addition to painting lots of abstract uh, art, all of which are based on theorems, he actually invented two original theorems of his own. So, so the, 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 the picture books come later. Um, but yeah, this, this is really his, his first venture into longer-form narrative, um, because he does have comics before this, he has uh, political cartoons for new masses, he has the classic, little known classic, Little Man with the Eyes strip, uh, which ran in Collier's from 40 to 43, but those are all moments more than narratives. I mean, there's a bit of narrative in Little Man with the Eyes, but what's remarkable really about Barnaby is the way the narrative just unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. It's a really hard strip to to excerpt because one story runs into the next, into the next, into the next, and it just keeps going. Do you think that, Phil, that Johnson, I mean, I was thinking about Robin's original question um, about how he didn't seem to necessarily, you know, set out to become a cartoonist, and in fact he had such a kind of well-rounded life that kind of like puts most of us in comics to shame. Um, but uh, but in reading your book, I can't help but also think like he spent a lot of his life at least somewhat chasing after the success he had early on with Barnaby and never quite seemed to get again, even though Harold ultimately ended up transcending Barnaby in terms of fame and popularity. He seemed to like be a little more... He, he held Barnaby a little closer to his heart, maybe? Yeah, it's funny. Um, Barnaby was very dear to him, and there were half a dozen failed adaptations for radio, stage, uh, and television. So throughout his life later, you know, he hoped that somehow this would um, bear some some fruit financially, um, although it never really did. But yeah, I mean, I, he, he, had a, he had a kind of mixed relationship to it, ultimately. You know, on the one hand, it was the strip that first got him known, first made him famous. It's a really good strip. I mean, yeah. uh, and he was aware that that he had done something really special with this. Uh, but on the other hand, he was not somebody who liked to hold a regular job, you know. And and all the demand of creating Barnaby and doing it day after day after day was just too much, and and it was made it made it not an enjoyable job. So so he always had a kind of I don't know mixed relationship to it in that sense. He was proud of it but he hated the daily grind of it. That makes sense. Because it struck me, one thing that struck me in the book is just that I didn't realize that after, you know, he had stopped working on the strip, he still pursued Barnaby as a intellectual property or whatever. For, it seemed like for, if I recall, for a few years afterwards. Oh, yeah. I mean, the last of the adaptations was um, in the 60s. Uh, mm -hmm. In 1966, Norman Lear did a pilot that's the one with Boss Hogg, is right? Exactly with Sword <laughs> O'Malley. As, uh, as O'Malley, exactly. Yeah, it's an unaired pilot. It's out there somewhere, but I've never seen I, it. When I read that in your book, I spent like an hour on the internet trying to find any photographic evidence of this. And have you asked? Uh, does Newgarden maybe have it in his <laughs> stores? Of uh... <laughs> good question, but oh my god. Yeah, um, if Mark has it, he's not told me, and I think he would have, but um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, and actually, the one that I really want to see, and, and Dan Klaus says that, um, that the Howard family has a copy of this, but is the 1959 
television pilot, which had Ronnie Howard as Barnaby and Bert Lahr, a.k.a. the Cowardly Lion, as uh, Mr. O'Malley. Um, and that got very good reviews and, and launched Ron Howard's career. After that, he was the star of The Andy Griffith Show, or you know, the co-star of The Andy Griffith Show. So um, that's one I'd really like to see. And, I, and it apparently exists on film somewhere, but I've never seen it. Wow. <laughs> Did um, the Barnaby character himself have any kind of personal um, reference in his life? Because I, I look at other comic strips and, like, um, with Frank King's Geisley and Alley work, there's a lot of, like, how that, you can find out how that personally affects his life. And I'm curious what Barnaby represents uh, for Crockett. Well, for- Johnson had no children of his own, mm-hmm. so it isn't like Frank King in that regard. For Johnson's child characters, they all, in some measure, come from him. Um, they all are versions of his own childhood. He grew up in Queens, which at the time was rural, which at the time was really in transition from rural to a more urban place. Uh, he was living there in around 1911, 1912 is when he started living there. So, you know, Barnaby growing up in the suburbs, Barnaby growing up um, where he does is not unlike the sort of childhood that um, that, that uh, Crockett Johnson had in that respect. and. Johnson was also a big fan of the outdoors, of exploring outside, and uh, that's certainly something Barnaby spent a lot of his time doing. Uh, There are a number of resonances between his childhood and Barnaby's childhood, so in that sense, yes, um, but there isn't the direct kind of autobiographical connection that you get with uh, Frank King. Although part of this, too, is that information on Crockett Johnson's childhood is pretty hard to come by. He had no autobiographical impulse. He wrote nothing about himself. There are very few interviews. Um, so I've reconstructed his childhood. I did get to talk to his sister before she passed away. Um, but, you know, uh, I, think, I think if there were any autobiographical reflections from Johnson, we might be able to find more than we can. So. Now, one of the things you talked about is the typography um, within the strip, and I guess also... Yeah the kind of way he used the strip in such a minimal fashion. And I'm wondering um, how unique that was at the time. We're talking early 1940s and a really, like, symbol-based comic strip in a way. Um, it, was, it was more than unique. It was, I mean, I think he almost invented it out of whole cloth. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unique in the, the true meaning of that word, you know, one of a kind. Uh Harriman did a crazy cat strip that he said in type, but I think it was just a one. It was one example of that exactly. Uh, Johnson's the only person uh, to do this regularly, um, so yeah, it's it, it is it is truly unique in that respect. It's all set in Futura <laughs> italic, which is a, a very modern font. It was invented in the 1920s by a, a German typographer, um, and. Um, for me, it really just speaks to the precision of Johnson's mind and his art. When he would be composing the panels and figuring out what O'Malley was going to say, for example, he was counting in his head the number of characters that he'd be using to fill that space. Um, and in fact, when you see drafts of strips which you see later, his own hand, his own handwriting, his own print is 
typographic. It is Futura. I mean, the actual style in which he prints <laughs> is the typeface that he uses. It's extraordinary, and it, and it merely makes me understand why Chris Ware so admires Johnson. They both have that kind of extraordinarily precise mind and ability to lay something out in their heads as they are putting it on the page. So uh, for me, that's just that just blows my mind. I, mean, I can't believe <laughs> that somebody can think like that. There's a couple things I was thinking about with the kind of the heavy use of the dialogue and the importance of the dialogue is um, in the back of the book you have some pretty extensive footnotes um, referring to things and storylines of where he's mm -hmm. pulling them from other sources. And I found that to be particularly unique when you're talking about how he's making reference to say something in Shakespeare mm -hmm. um, and just kind of how he's playing with kind of adding these extra dimensions to things just based specifically on on the words not necessarily on using like images yeah no I think that's a that's a really great point that it is a, an extraordinarily text heavy strip and the typography enables that it enables him to fit a lot more words into this than he might otherwise be able to do and it enabled him to display his wide range of knowledge it, it enabled him to be as elusive as he wanted to be and some of these illusions would be legible to readers of the time some of them wouldn't um, some of them are topical and they would know and then we don't know hence the notes at the back but yeah no he, he was an extraordinarily well-read guy and just a very curious fellow I mean somebody with interest in a lot of different things I talked to so many people uh, about him people who knew him and one of the common themes of, of of that was just how much he knew um, and, and how amazed they were that they'd bring up some obscure topic and he'd be able to have a conversation about it. Really, really bright guy. Now, for for yourself, Phil, what what is it about uh, Crockett Johnson that you your, you wanted to do a book about him and Ruth and his life um, as a source of study? What is it in particular? Well, for me, it begins with Harold, as I suspect it does for many people who know Crockett Johnson today. Harold and the Purple Crayon, the little boy who draws his universe with a purple crayon, um, and that universe becomes real. It's the most succinct expression of imaginative possibility that I've ever seen. But um, that's what got me started, was that book. And then I was reading the Popular Front newspaper PM on microfilm, which is, of course, where Barnaby first appeared. Uh, in New York, starting in 1942, and at the time I was looking for Dr. Seuss's World War II cartoons, which had not then been collected in any form, and I started noticing at the end of April of 1942, this little kid in a comic strip who looked just like Harold, and so of course I started to read it every day as I was going through these microfilms finding these cartoons, um, and that's what got me interested, learning about Barnaby, and then learning that Prior to Barnaby, he had this other career um, as, uh, as a cartoonist for the New Masses and, in fact, editor uh, for this Communist Weekly. I realized, boy, there's a lot more to this Crockett Johnson fellow than I thought, and uh, there's a story here. And then, of course, lacking any sense of perspective um, or, um, you know, <laughs> connection with reality, I thought, hey, I'll write a biography of him. Uh, and then further illustrating my uh, my lack of judgment, I thought that the best way to write a biography of him would also to be to write about his spouse, Ruth Krauss, an acclaimed children's writer in her own right, uh, and, and thus making my task that much harder. Um, 
but uh, that's 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 what started it all. That's the kind of that's the chain of events that that got me into uh, to this quixotic project of of writing double biography, and then happily into this the project of uh, of Barnaby. Had there been any one other kind of cultural folks that you had put so much study in previously? Um, yeah, I mean, I have a couple of books on Dr. Seuss, so I know a fair bit about him. Um, but um, yeah, Johnson and and, and Krauss and, and Seuss, I guess, are the main people. Well, I've written a, a bit about uh, J.K. Rowling and uh, the Harry Potter books. I guess those are the four that that I have written the most about. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a that, that, that's a a good question. Um, what, what, what are my other obsessions? <laughs> How did I get to this obsession? <laughs> Why am I so obsessed? Uh, <laughs> and speaking of obsession, Eric, this has been a book you wanted to do for quite some time, from what I understand. Yeah, um, I'm not even sure how many years. I was, I, I, I'm not even sure when I first discovered Barnaby, but I know the first sort of sustained chunk of Barnaby I ever read was, I happened to be in a bookstore in Amsterdam, um, the American Book Center, and I found one of the um, Holt paperback. Is it, is it, is it Holt, uh, the paperback edition? It is, from, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, sorry, the paperbacks The paperbacks are by Del Rey, the ones published in the 80s? No, no, this was the paperback edition of the the Holt hardcover. Um, oh, okay, from the pocketbooks. Yeah, it was a pocketbook edition. Yeah, there pocket you go. Books to the, um, the, with the, the yellow cover. and Yes, that's you know, the one. Yep. Um, and I bought that. I I bought that, and I was staying in Gallery Lambique uh, in this apartment that they uh, owned above the store, and just devoured that thing, and just immediately fell in love. And I believe I'd already heard about Barnaby, and even read a few a few things here and there, um, mostly through Dan Clowes. But that getting that book just sparked an obsession, and you know those were. I think even like pre-eBay days when I had to spend a few years, you know, trying to track down the various collected editions over the years. And I first tried to look into the rights, I don't know, maybe maybe five years ago. I I gave Gary Groth like a stack of like a thousand pages of Xeroxes that I'd made for him. <laughs> <laughs> when his when his son uh, it was a giant stack that I gave him when his son was was probably about Barnaby's age, huh. and um, he read those and it was the first time he'd really read the strip. He was sort huh. of familiar with it, but he'd never read it either, and so he really loved it. And he read them to his son, and I guess it was a great experience. And so he spent a little bit of time trying to track down the estate, um, and I think he even got a hold of them, but had no luck, and then. We tried at least one other time, and at, anyway, at some point I got a hold of Phil during all of this, and it was because he had the only website about Crockett Johnson on the internet, and not only that, but it was really the, had the only source of any information about Crockett Johnson on the internet, and so I got a hold of him pretty early on, I think Dan Klaus or Chris Ware tipped me on to, to him, and um, anyways, I'm rambling, but... I emailed Phil at some point, I want to say probably about five years ago. Is that Yeah, something like that. Um, you know, and, and he, Phil had a connection to the estate because of his research for the bio. So that was the real icebreaker that really, you know, I think enabled us to, to make it happen. Because I think prior to that, 
the estate really didn't know us from Adam and, and probably, you know, rightfully so, didn't appreciate why they would want to license this, you know, what they believed was a probably a pretty potentially valuable property. Why would they want to license it, license it to this little independent company in Seattle? Um, but he was able to put in a good word. I think they'd had a good experience with him, and one thing led to another, and here we are. That sounds that sounds like a good story to me. I'll I'll stick to that. I'll sign on to that. <laughs> I was wondering whether or not it was public domain at this point. No, no, no. 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 You got to get back before 1923. 22, I think. Yeah. 22. Something like that. Public domain. Yeah. No, it's uh, the rights are held by the estate of Ruth Krauss. Uh, because when Johnson died, he left everything to her, and she died last. So that's that's who holds the rights. One thing that's interesting about him is the more I read his work and the more I read about him, mostly through Phil's bio, I mean, just the more interesting he gets. He really was just such a multifaceted and multi-layered guy, super, obviously super smart. Ob- he seemed like a very warm and bright mm-hmm. and genuine guy. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, he's kind of elusive at the same time. Yep. Um, like, yeah. maybe, maybe that goes to what you were saying about how he lacked any kind of autobiographical impulse, whether that was a conscious choice or a subconscious choice. I guess, you know, we'll never know. No, I, mean, but I, I think, uh, I mean, he was, in person, very soft-spoken, had a kind of wry, laconic sort of sense of humor. Um, and he would say things that were absolutely hilarious, but he was not the center of attention. You know, he just sort of yeah. slipped some comment that would just break the room up. But uh, Ruth, his wife, she was much more the center of attention, much more outgoing, much more vivacious, um, much more of a character, um, where he was a bit more reticent and, you know, even, even a bit shy, he seemed to people or to some people. So uh, they they were really complementary opposites as a couple, uh, which I think is why their marriage worked. You know, I don't think you could have two people with personality like Ruth Krauss. They would just fight all the time. But he, <laughs> but he was able to kind of absorb her energy and her neuroses um, in a way that, that worked well for both of them. Um, they seem to have a really wonderful marriage. I mean... Yeah, yeah and I mean, it's a... I mean, Ruth would have driven me crazy, I think, as a... Yeah, right. Like, bright, you know, creative, really interesting, and... Impulsive. Impulsive, and, and, uh, uh, yeah, she she was, she was was tough to work with, at least, if you read the correspondence with her editor, she was pretty tough to work with, Um, and I think she drove them pretty crazy, whereas, uh, I mean, for him, yeah, he was... uh, he he was much more laid back, although he was a perfectionist, and and I you definitely see that in Barnaby. He was definitely a perfectionist. Everything had to be exactly right, which is why I think drawing the strip was so exhausting for him, um, because uh, you know it had to be just right. Although of course the conditions under which he created that just rightness were usually between midnight and six in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also a procrastinator, and he would. <laughs> you know, wait until the deadline and then, you know, pull an all-nighter and, and write a week's worth of strips. Um, Dan Klaus mentioned to me that, you know, that, that the bio is like the only bio of an artist that, you know, he's ever come out of it thinking, liking the guy even more than he did going in. Um, or something, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to that effect. And and I, I think he's right. It's like, you know, you, a lot of times 
the, the 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 man doesn't live up to the myth and he was a really fascinating guy i read right after i read the the your book i read um recently the al cap bio by dennis kitchen and uh i think michael schumacher um and that's a really good book too but oh my god i mean these they're like goofus and gallant johnson <laughs> and cap you know <laughs> Um, I mean, Cap was that book's a page turner in the exact opposite way. You know, Cap was just such a loathsome guy. What's the next horrible thing he's gonna do? To yeah, someone? exactly. Whereas you know, Johnson, you just like you know, you just come out of this thing just like admiring this guy and thinking like, man, what a what a what a great man, you know. And that's you know the the stories about him all tend to be like that. People's dealings with Ruth, on the other hand, that was a little more colorful. I mean. <laughs> You know, friendships broken and, and, you know, arguments and so on. Uh, but nobody really had anything negative to say about Johnson. Well, I told you, Phil, that um, I recently spoke to Jules Pfeiffer. And um, Jules is going to write the introduction to the second volume of Barnaby. Um, Chris Ware wrote the introduction to volume one. But Jules, when Jules talks about Johnson, his affection is just palpable. It's, um, he, he has a great anecdote about meeting... Ruth Krauss and um, Ursula Nordstrom and Maurice Sendak within 15 minutes of each other. Uh Um, And what a fateful day that was in his life. And, you know, he had a, a, all of them, you know, he he had some professional connection with, but he, but he says, and you can just hear it in his voice, he says the one that he loved the most was Crockett, although he calls him uh, David, I guess. Right, yeah, uh-huh. everybody who knew him called him Dave, because that was his real name. <laughs> was and, Right. So, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's just you know, Johnson's like, you know, sort of the, the, the one he had the least to do with professionally, although they tried to work together later on, but when he first met, he was, um, he was really professionally more operating in the circles of Sendak and Krauss, but he came to really enjoy Johnson. Yeah, or Mr. Least. And and just for the listeners, we should say that Ursula Nordstrom is the legendary children's book editor at Harper who published all the major children's writers at Harper from 1945 to 1973, including Sendak, Johnson, Krauss, Sidhoff, Shel Silverstein, Louise Fitzhugh, uh, I mean, just everybody, uh, everybody she published. Um, and she was a, an extraordinary person and uh, deserves a biography of her own. Um, but, uh, yeah. Your next no, book. Pardon me? Your next book. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. There, there's a collection of her letters, um, which Leonard Marcus edited, which is, which is really wonderful, and you get a lot of insight into publishing, uh, you know, from the 40s to the, to the 70s. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, Johnson and Pfeiffer did a, did a comic strip. They did two weeks of a comic strip that has never seen the light of day. Um, well, I mean, we published one week of it in the, in the bio. But, um, the Comics Journal published a chunk of it. I'm not sure if it was all of it. Uh, this we uh, I did yeah. I wrote that article for the Comics Journal. We published the same uh, the same excerpt. But there's oh, that's right. okay. we should actually try to publish both of those in the last volume just as a kind of you know bonus because it's pretty cool. Um, you know I think it's really cool too. And I said that to Pfeiffer and and he just like laughed at me and you know he thought it was just really insignificant but I know, I know. But it's super stylish and cool looking. I like it a lot. I mean, you have this kind of I mean, one of Johnson's fascinations with detective fiction and true crime stories. And so this strip is the kind of a has a kind of noirish detective narrative going on, but it's it's filtered 
largely through a child's point of view. And so it's a sort of strange collision of, you know, serious noir with childhood. Uh, and it's great. And he did the words, and Pfeiffer did the art. And yeah, and Pfeiffer speaks of it as if it's a sort of embarrassment uh, to him and, and his career, but it really isn't. It's, it's actually quite wonderful, and uh, you know, I wish they'd done more of it. Yeah, me too. But this was well past um, when he had stopped doing Barnaby. Oh yeah, this is post Barnaby. This is um, <clears throat> let me see. The comic strip he did with Pfeiffer was so oh, I don't have the date directly in my head. I want to say it's like late fifties or yeah, I was gonna say like late fifties, early sixties somewhere. Yeah, late fifties, early sixties somewhere. And there, Pfeiffer was just out of the army at that point um, and was trying to break into children's books. Uh, hence his uh, meeting with Ursula Nordstrom and, and Maurice Sendak uh, and Ruth Krauss who were all in the children's book business, and he did break into children's books with the illustrations to the Phantom Tollbooth, which he did shortly after that strip. So he did he did start some some children's book work at that time, although he really didn't get back into children's books much until significantly later in his career. Um, he was really first and foremost a cartoonist for a while. He told me that Sendak, um, basically, he saw Sendak's work and he knew he was never going to cut it as a children's book illustrator. Yeah, yeah, he told me a version of that, too. <laughs> Basically, looking at Sendak, he thought, okay, you know, <laughs> there's no way I can compete with that, so I'll stick to the, car- the, to the cartoons, the comics. Yeah. Now, speaking of Sendak, you had a quote on, his, on your website, on your Crockett Johnson website, from Sendak about his time when he was first starting uh, as a children's book artist, illustrator, spending time with Ruth and Crockett. I'm wondering if you could kind of touch on that. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. Maurice was extraordinarily generous in sharing his recollections of his time with them. Um, he credits them, Maurice and that credits Crockett Johnson and Ruth Krauss with teaching him how to write children's books. Um, he, he credits them with being his, his teachers. Um, he thought of them kind of as his, his weekend parents at the time, too. And this is how it starts. It starts when Ruth Krauss has this book idea. She's been listening to kids and kids defining words, defining words in their own terms, not as you would in a dictionary. You know, uh, dogs are to kiss people. Uh, rugs are so dogs can have something to wipe their noses on. And A hole is to dig. And um, her editor, Ursula Nordstrom, loves it, thinks it's a great idea. But no illustrator wants to touch it. I don't think it's an idea for a children's book. So Ursula Nordstrom, who has worked with Maurice Sendak before, he illustrated a book for her, and he left with her some sketches he had done of Brooklyn school children uh, playing in the street uh, in the late 40s. And, and she looked at those sketches and thought, this is the guy for this book. So um, she got in touch with him. He was then a window display artist for FAO Schwartz and uh, invited him up to meet Ruth. They met, they clicked, and a partnership was born. Uh, and his career really started. He would go on to illustrate nine of Ruth's books in all, uh, eight of those between 1952 and, and 1960, and he used to spend his weekends at their house. He used to spend his weekends out of New York City in Norwayton, Connecticut, on the coast of Long Island Sound, working with Ruth. And they would argue, and they would fight over where the illustrations were supposed to go and what they were supposed to look like. And Dave, which is to say Crockett Johnson, would referee and he would help uh, help them make the book come together. 
because he was very calm, very soft-spoken, and uh, actually influenced the design of those books, too. Um, but when A Hole in the Dig was published in 1952, it was huge. It was a big hit. And it was so successful that Maurice Sendak was able to quit his day job as winter display artist for F.A.R. Schwartz and become a full-time freelance illustrator of books for children. Because when they were drawing up the contracts for A Hole in the Dig, Ron just pay him an illustrator's fee, Ruth insisted that they split the royalties half and half, because he did the pictures and she did the words. Um, and they did, and of course, when it was a big hit, that, that made all the difference in the world to him. And, you know, from that point on, he's illustrating as many as uh, six or seven books a year uh, for, uh, really, throughout the decade of the 1950s, and then starts writing his own books, and, of course, becomes one of the greatest artists for children, really artists, period, of the 20th century. So, yeah, he was, he was uh, a very important figure for me in writing the biography, and Johnson and Krauss were extremely important in his own life in terms of being mentors to him. So he, he was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm ever grateful to him for, for sharing that experience uh, and sharing those memories with me. That's awesome to have that opportunity. Um, Eric, I'm wondering if you can touch on a bit of kind of uh, the Crockett legacy, the Barnaby legacy um, in Cartoonist Now. You've mentioned uh, Dan Klaus a couple of times, and especially looking at Dan's more recent work, you can definitely see that carryover and, and what it is for Barnaby's work that's really lasted for, for Klaus and Ware and other folks. Oh man, I mean, I can't speak for for Chris or for Dan. In fact, you know, when we did the Barnaby panel at SPX, you know, I just I just wanted to shut up and listen to Chris talk about Barnaby, um, because he he can do so with with such you know articulate precision. Um, Chris can kind of unpack you know what makes a comic good, um, and and articulate that in ways that no one else vir- can. Virtually no one else can. Um, and and you know and I just sort of sat there like a fan you know probably with my jaw down listening to him but I don't know I mean I can only speak to myself and and you know my interest in Barnaby is so sort of in ingrained in my my relationship with particularly Dan and also Chris but um, but you know Dan was literally the first one of the first people I knew who who knew what Barnaby was and that you know you could just sort of talk to about it um, and you know the it's the the art is just so f- compelling on a formal level I mean it, it's sort of um, there are contradictions in it that are I find fascinating first and foremost I guess the obvious one is the is the type which I think you know Dan and Chris would be the types of cartoonists that would agree that, you know, that 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 setting the type kind of deadens things in theory, um, and I guess it does in in Barnaby's case as well too. But it's but it's to an effect that's you know that's that's something altogether different from what you'd normally expect, and I think it's true. You know, Phil mentioned earlier that his his brush work is sort of similarly you know, 
what's it's you know you could it's say precise. it's diag- it's precise it's precise, precise it's diagrammatic. And- I mean I mean and, and to amplify what you said about the type I mean I think what makes it work is that the form becomes invisible um, and and I think that's what makes yeah. it work too right you, it, it, you the, the pictures speak as as words in a way and the typography makes the artifice of type invisible that's just the nature of the Futura typography so right. you somehow apprehend this more directly it, the styles like lacks ego in some way it's like mm-hmm. it's it's just um it's 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 there to be read as a as as you know a, a diagram not as an illustration mm-hmm. um and you know a lot of people can't pull that off but he can and even i'd even say i say there's contradictions in his work because um you know for his is diagrammatic and i i don't know why i keep necessarily using that word but his as his line is there is also a very subtle softness to it it is not it's not dead um mm-hmm. it's you know it, it it retains some sort of sense of warmth that is is just that's very attractive to me um so it's just sort of this this weird you know bundle of of contradictions and things that I don't think should work but do and his sense of humor and his sense of wordplay are just kind of unparalleled in in comics. I mean there are other strips that I guess utilized a sort of similarly pared down style like maybe The Little King by Otto Soglo. Right. Um, and I'm sure there are a few others even that that maybe Phil might be able to think of, but None of them really quite put it together in this way. I mean, it, Barnaby's pretty sui generis in terms of, you know, how uh, on a formal level, on a on a content level, um, you know, when, when Phil was, when you guys were talking about, you know, the all the references and allusions and and things that that he put in the strip. Again, it's like. I don't never. I never get the sense that he's trying to show off how smart he is. Like I almost get the sense more that he's really trying to be a popular artist, and he's trying to, you know, to appeal to a sophisticated reader, but also a mass audience via the newspaper. And he's sort of peppering it with, you know, with with some chicken fat that you know the the more sophisticated readers might really dig. But it also satisfies on an almost you know childlike level. Um, I, I so get that, that. I get the same feeling I got from reading that stuff as like I get with some of the Gary Panther work, where you could see just like all these different things are kind of feeding into that page. Yeah, or even you know on a on a on a more direct level, a few years later, Peanuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Schultz read uh, Barnaby too. So yeah, so, it, I mean, it has th- that you know, it's a it's a sophisticated strip that kids can enjoy but you know adults can can read you know far many more layers of nuance or meaning into it and i mean barnaby's bewilderment is at the heart of the strip i think um you know his reaction to the the strange ideas the adults have um their unwillingness to to see mr o'malley who clearly exists um you know, I mean, I, I think that that's part of the experience of being a child. There's a sort of uh, bewilderment at the, these strange grown-ups who have these weird ideas about how things work, which obviously can't be true. Um, <laughs> that's right. Then also, it's like, you know, you just got to the heart of it. It's like, aside from all this talk about, you know, what a what a formerly brilliant cartoonist Crockett Johnson was, the strip is just 
fun. And the conceit mm-hmm. of Mr. O'Malley is is just, you know, one of the great sort of <laughs> conceits in comics history, if not, you know, yeah. popular popular culture he in America. A, he is he, a wonderful character. He of, is up there with Wimpy and Homer Simpson and, yep. you know, just the great, you know, the great kind of buffoons in in popular art um but but lovable he really is he's 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 part you know con artist and he's part fairy fairy godfather but an inept fairy godfather jeet has this wonderful description of him in the in his piece for the book If, if i can quote this he calls him uh um half pixie and half grifter an otherworldly being most at home in low life dives and gambling dens a raider of other people's fridges and cigar boxes an inept wizard whose magic only works intermittently and often with unintended consequences. A self-mythologizer whose account of his own past glories is an improbable farrago of tall tales. A rhetorician quick to smooth over any difficulty with Rococo eloquence and irrelevant impressions. <laughs> that's, Wait, is that is that about Rob Ford? or? Um, that's Jeet here. <laughs> Good try there, Eric. Good try. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've been I've been thinking about his difficulties and uh, but but th- but that's but that's why you know O'Malley is sort of a wonderful character of possibility. He can be a politician, right? And he is. He gets elected to Congress in the series in the strip, which you'll see in uh, in volume two. So, um, you know, he he can be anything. You know, he can be a boxing promoter. He can be an author. He can be a politician. He can uh, he, anything at all. And, and, and he's and kind always... of piece that allows him to believe he can do it too. Hmm? And although he's the star, he's one of many, you know, equally great characters in the strip. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's just, you know, it's just a fun, imaginative strip. I mean, everything that you ultimately see, you know, you, in, in Harold and the Purple Crayon, you sort of reach that kind of apothesis of, um, the, you know, the the idea of this this succinct idea of of sort of giving uh, form to the idea of imagination. Um, but you can, you know, it's it's there in Barnaby as well. Yeah, all the secondary characters are delightful. There's, uh, you know, Gus, the ghost who's afraid of his own shadow and so not really effective at haunting. Uh, there's Gridley, the fire pixie, who is never able to produce any fire. Uh, there's Atlas, who's a giant, but only a mental giant, and he has to calculate everything on his slide rule. And, you know, all, all the characters have these little quirks to them that really make them real and, and believable sorts of characters so that, that's part of the fun too now within the strip itself there was a point in time where he wasn't actually drawing it yeah that that's right, right. Um, which i'm really curious about because i mean you look at this first volume and it's a very idiosyncratic book in a way like his art style is very unique it's very per like very much part of this person and i'm curious like how that translates into these other he found some really good mimics he did, yeah. It's it's all him for the first four years, um, and then he stays on as a story consultant for about a year and a half. But he has uh, Ted Farrow, who was a guy who wrote for radio, doing the writing, and Jack Morley doing the art. Um, but after about a year and a half of being story consultant, and you can see him more involved at times than others, he comes back to write, but not to do the art, although. Again, being a perfectionist, I say he doesn't do the art, but he does do some fairly detailed sketches about where everything is supposed to go. There are sketches that survive for some of the later years of the strip. And you can see that although he's not doing the art, he's actually laying it out pretty clearly and sometimes sketching where everything is supposed to go. So he did leave the art 
to Jack Morley, but he also didn't. Yeah, he knew quite what he wanted it to look like and wanted to make sure that Jack Morley drew it the way that it should be drawn. Um, and I talked to the guy who did the art for this in the 60s. It, it briefly reappeared from um, 60 to 62, and um, Warren Sattler drew it then, and, and he said it was really hard working for Crockett Johnson because he had a very precise line, and he wanted you to get it just right. Um, so I, I never got to talk to Jack Morley. He's uh, long since passed away, but I can imagine that although he was the artist, uh, he was guided heavily by Johnson, and, and, and in ways that I, I think might have been challenging, to be perfectly honest, because Johnson knew exactly what he wanted. Right, so and, it's, and it's funny, because I mean, he, I'd, I'd, I'd love to you know, sit in and hear some of those conversations, because those guys really are pretty damn good mimics and mm -hmm. you there's really you don't you, you don't you don't miss much when we were first contemplating you know exactly what strips we would print in the barnaby books you know there was some thought like well should we do the, the marrow and and you know morley uh, morley strips yeah. i was gonna say forley farley uh <laughs> morley strips and you know and just because you know you we're purists, you know, you think like, oh, these are you know these these aren't the Crockett Johnson strips, but they are. It's like you, you, from what I've read, and I still haven't read all of them myself, but from what I have read, they really don't miss a beat, and they still seem pretty. They seem they seem to ring Johnson to me. Yeah, and and um, Jack Morley was great at doing Johnson style. I mean, uh, he he really. Visually, it's almost impossible to see the difference between mm -hmm. a Morley line and a Johnson line. And Johnson's still involved in the story conferences. And, and then when I read those strips, I mean, I see moments where you clearly have the mark of Johnson. That's clearly a, a Johnson joke or a Johnson reference. And then others where he seems to be less involved. But, um, you know, they're, they, they are still, uh, they're, they're still very much uh, Barnaby and... Uh, the, the later years, when the strip appears, when he's back doing the writing, it's credited to Jack Morley and C.J., you know, so he's only using his initials. But I think that's because of his perfectionism, because his mark is all over it, you know. <laughs> but because he's not doing the actual drawing of the strip, he gives himself second billing as C.J., mm -hmm. even though it's really Crockett Johnson's strip still. So, I mean, I, I think, for me, that's a, a manifestation of his own sense of, of uh, you know perfectionism, and that well, you know this other guy's drawing it, so I'll put my name second and only initials. Well, also to me, it also strikes as uh, making sure that his collaborator, like he's respecting his collaborator too. Yeah. As yeah. far as being yeah. someone that's put in this work. Yeah. Yeah. One no, thing that I I noticed while we were putting the first book together that really struck me is I'd read so many iterations of Barnaby over the years, either either in these there was this series of of six really crappy paperback editions of Barnaby published in the 80s by uh, Del Rey Ballantyne. Yep. And, um, I mean, I've actually still have been using those books just for some easy reference for this book, and it really is kind of appalling how, how bad those books are, although I was, you know, God knows I was immensely grateful they existed when I first found them. Um, but... The, the the reason I mention it is because you I, it wasn't until reading these strips in the, uh, with the scans from our book that I was really I felt like I was seeing the strip with new eyes for the first time because I almost did feel like Johnson's line was kind of dead and was just really lacked any 
width variation or anything, you know, any kind of warm, you know, sort of subtle brush um, echoes. And it's subtle, but it's absolutely there. And you can see it in the Fanographics book I'm, I'm very proud of because... <laughs> Because, really, it's like before that, you know, you can see it a little bit in the whole hardcover editions right. from the 50s, but those books are, I mean, that's a whole other subject, but those books aren't the comic strip, really. Right. No, they, um, what was it, like, they, he redrew some strips and kind of told the story yeah, a little different? Yeah, he basically, yeah, repurposed them into a kind of a graphic novel, you know? And yeah, re- and, this is, and this is Johnson's perfectionism again, right? A lot of strip authors are just saying, yeah, here, you know run them as they ran in the newspaper, uh, print some books out of them. Johnson redrew what he felt were the best episodes from the Daily Strip for the collections published by Halt, uh, uh, Barnaby, and then Barnaby and Mr. O'Malley, um, and divides them up into chapters so that there is a kind of you know sequence, uh, narrative sequence that's marked by those, those chapter titles. Um, and uh, they are similar and they'll have some of the same language, but they're also different. Um, they're also not the original strips, too. So uh, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> it is kind of crazy. And I mean, he does things like so. So Alice, the mental giant, right? He uses mathematical formula when he talks, and they're they're mnemonic devices, and they help him remember things. Um, these really complex mathematical formula. Um, and so uh, for the for the books the Halt books in the 40s, what Johnson does is, in collaboration with someone who really knows math, has those formula, each formula actually means something. So if you were to, to solve the puzzle, if you were to translate this, uh, simplify it, if you will, it would actually spell, say, O'Malley. I mean, that's the level of detail that he goes into for, uh, for the revision, which is kind of amazing, really. Um, but, uh, but he does. That's the kind of person he was. You guys still there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Marveling at his Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah. No. And I mean, and he actually repurposes some of the formula that uh, some of the formulas that that he he learned uh, or and, and devised in collaboration with a guy who may or may not be the model for for the character of Atlas, um, who was a friend of his. Um, he actually, uh, you know, he actually re- reuses those later in some of the daily strips as well. So. Now, will there, be, will there be any interest in doing those separate little books um, within themselves after this project is done? I don't know. I, I, don't know. I mean, maybe. I, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I mean, the, the, the reason I say it's crazy, though, is they're, they are, you know, they're, they overlap more than they don't. Um, it's just that he just kind of decided to redraw the thing and make some very subtle edits to it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, in some ways, they're they're better. I mean, that was the thing we talked about from the start too. Is was should we should we do those books because those books really are a kind of um, you know they're they're really kind of perfect in their own way, but mm-hmm. they only cover what like the the two books like maybe cover like a year's worth of material. Um, they cover, maybe more. Yeah, a little more than that. I mean, they okay. they cover about yeah maybe a year and a half or maybe up to two years worth of material, but but not a lot. And at that point, you're missing out on, you know, if you did that, then then it would be weird to do those and then do the the newspaper strips. But you yeah, want to do the strips because they go on for 10 years and there's so many great storylines and characters that never even appear right. in those two whole hardcovers. Exactly. And, and what's fun about 
this too is you really get to see him the, the Fantagraphics books at least is you really get to see him develop the characters um, you know just as Schultz's Peanuts characters change in the way they look over time so do Johnson's although pretty quickly he gets down exactly what he wants them to look like but but um, they, they do change over time and Mr. O'Malley's proportions are originally different after about six months Johnson gets O'Malley and the proportions that we expect him to appear in. But uh, um, what's what's nice about Fantagraphics is you can actually see him developing this work in progress, and uh, uh, that's kind of cool. And and that's that's something that uh, I, I think you want to see. You know, just just for the same reason you want to see Charles Schultz work out exactly what this Peanuts world is in those first two volumes. Of well, and it's also because you know, like Peanuts, but unlike say. Yeah, I don't know what's a good what's a what's a good example. Like unlike say Thimble Theater, you know, it's it actually is really good right from the get go and really enjoyable. Even though it ends up being a little bit different from what it ends up being, mm-hmm. Peanuts is kind of the same way. You know, I you know in some ways those early '50s Peanuts are every bit as good or better even than some of the later ones. It just depends on your perspective and you know um, you know. But whereas something like Thimble Theater, you know. You know, Popeye doesn't even come into the picture for 10 years, and the early strip is just much different than what it ended up being. Or even something like Gasoline Alley, which, you know, started out as like a single panel, you know. It's like you wouldn't necessarily want to start at ground zero. But but Barnaby, I think you really can. And and ultimately, when it's all said and done, you know, you've got this 10-year body of work that's um, that's really, you know, one sustained organic whole. It has a beginning... And a really, really long middle, and then a really tight ending. It's it's great. Yeah, um, it does actually end the strip. There, there is a final sequence to Barnaby, which concludes it. Um, it concludes the adventures. And I don't want to, I don't want to give it away. But, but I mean, Johnson does actually script a conclusion to it. He doesn't just stop it. There's an ending. We got five years to find out. That's right. Or four years. Five years to find out. <laughs> Or four years. Yeah. I think we'll be able to do one a year, don't you think, Eric? I do. Now that the first one, you know, yeah, they're a little trial by fire with the first one. <laughs> but, I mean, we've already got, um, I mean, I've already written everything I need to write for the second volume, and we have almost all the strips coming in or already in, so, you know, I think I think we'll be able to get this done. I think Well, thank you both for coming and talking about this. Uh, Barnaby, the first collection out now in finer comic stores, regular stores, and other places. Um, my guests have been Eric Reynolds and Phil Nell, um, both heavily involved in this project. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us.